Alrighty. Well, if you have your copy of the scriptures, please turn to Leviticus chapter 9. <clears throat> Leviticus chapter 9. And we're going to begin at verse 22. And while you're at it, you can also turn to Hebrews chapter 12 and put your finger there in Hebrews 12 as well. We're going to read a section of Hebrews 12. So starting Leviticus 9, verse 22, we're using the Pew Bible. I think it's page 87. And then Hebrews 12, we'll read a number of verses beginning at verse 18. This is on page 1009. Leviticus 9, beginning at verse 22. This is God's Word. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses has said. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and to Ithamar, his sons, Do not let the hair of your heads hang loose, and do not tear your clothes, lest you die, and wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the morning that the Lord has kindled, and do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting, lest you die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to to the words of Moses. And then if you could, turn over to Hebrews 12. Beginning at verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the holy, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. 
See that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused Him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject Him who warns from heaven. At that time, His voice shook the earth, and but now He has promised, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Please pray with me. Almighty God, we come before you this evening. We thank you for your word that reveals who you are and what you have done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask now that as we hear your word, we would hear it not from men, but we would hear it as the very voice of God. And so we ask that you would comfort those who are afflicted and that you would afflict those who are comforted that we might come and know you better, even through a dreadful and terrifying passage this evening. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Many of you will know uh, the individual by the name of Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins is an evolutionary biologist and author, a well-known God-hater, In his book, The God Delusion, Richard Dawkins comments this, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, capriciously malevolent bully. Some read the Old Testament and may read a story like Nadab and Abihu and come to that same conclusion. This God, this God of the Old Testament is sort of capricious. And we may hear these things, even in the Christian community, we often might hear the sort of language of the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath, and the God of the New Testament is simply a God of love. John Calvin comments on this passage, and he says this, always a good idea to listen to Calvin. If we reflect how holy a thing God's worship is. The enormity of the punishment will by no means offend us. So you have the contrast between the non-Christian who sees themselves as the judge in the driver's seat who get to dictate how they will worship this quote-unquote God. But the Christian is the one who recognizes who God is dictates how we worship Him. The God that we know dictates to us how we worship Him. 
an individual who just recently came to the seminary, um, a pastor, I think, down in North Carolina. He made this comment. I think it's brilliant. He talks about, um, in our age, we, we, we tend to we build churches and our worship is very consumer-based. And um, he says, that's okay. He says, in, in, and that's okay. Um, consumerism is okay, but he says, when it comes to worship, the customer is always right. Not just out there in the world, but also in worship. The customer, he's always right. But this individual, Neil Stewart, says, the problem is, we think we're the customer. We think the world is the customer. And he says, in fact, God, he's the consumer. Consumer is always right. And so this is the God that Nadab and Abihu come to, and they thought, we can worship as we please. We can worship as we please. So first, the God whom we worship is a God who plays for keeps. He's both holy and jealous. He's a holy God. If you read through the book of Leviticus in your morning readings, and you've, you've made it to that point, you haven't skipped over the Old Testament by that point, but if you've gotten there, you'll notice the refrain throughout, throughout the Old Testament, throughout this book, God constantly makes the distinction between the holy and the unholy. We see that even in chapter 10, if you look just a few verses down in verse 10. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean. You are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. So God, throughout Scripture, constantly, you see this refrain, that the unholy cannot dwell with the holy. You saw this in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve created right, righteous and holy. They sin and as unholy banished from the presence of God. The unholy cannot dwell with the holy. And the same thing. The whole Old Testament sacrificial system is set up in the same way. There's the outer courts. And in order to come into the presence of God, there must be a setting apart. There must be a sanctification process. Read through the book of Leviticus and even in Exodus and you'll see this. The unholy must be made holy. Must be set apart in order to come before a holy God. So God is holy. We are not. Most fundamental reality for us to consider. But also God is a jealous God. God is a jealous God and He's jealous for His worship. Another theme that you'll see running through Scripture, that God cares about His worship, about the worship of Himself. You begin in Genesis, Genesis 4, you see it with Cain and Abel. But primarily you'll see it when you read through the Exodus narrative. When God tells Moses to go speak to Pharaoh, what is the thing that God is most concerned about? Let my people go, that they may worship me. God is concerned. He is jealous for His worship. At Mount Sinai, when Moses has already come down the mountain and smashed the tablets, and then he goes back up the mountain in Exodus 34, God says this to him, You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim, or, or idols, for you shall worship 
no other God. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. God is holy and jealous for his worship. And one final example of this is in First Chronicles. You'll remember the story of Uzzah and the ark. Some similar similarities going on here with the story of Nadab and Abihu. Uzzah thinks, I can approach God and I can honor God however I please. And so he reaches down as the cart is falling and he touches the ark. And we see once again that God is a jealous God. God is holy and God is jealous. This is the God whom we worship. Secondly, there's the wrong sacrifice that Nadab and Abihu offer before the Lord. You have the God whom we worship, but then what it is that we're doing in worship must be right. It must be proper. Now, commentators differ on exactly what this strange or unauthorized fire really was. Um, Just a few chapters prior in Uh, Chapter 6, we read about the altar of the Lord is to be constantly burning. The flame is never to go out. And so possibly the fire, the flame that was to be used was coming from that altar. Um, One commentator, Andrew Bonar, friends of Robert Murray McShane in the 1800s, comments that it was most probably that Nadab and Abihu um, used improper fire, not fire that was designated by the Lord. We're not exactly sure what this fire is, but the principle remains the same. It matters how you worship. We tend to think Old Testament is where it mattered. You had to do the rituals, you had to do the right things in worship. And then we come to the New Testament and we think, well, there's not so many rituals and codes, so we get to just make up how we worship as long as you have your right heart. As long as you have the right heart in worship, that's all that matters. It doesn't matter how you worship God. And the principle throughout Scripture, you read about it in Acts, Ananias and Sapphira. They come before the Lord, and they may have had the right heart. We want to give to the church, but they don't do so in the manner that God commanded, and thus God strikes them down. And we may think, in our own circles, that we get to decide how it is that we worship Let me remind you again that God cares how He is worshipped. The God that we worship is not only concerned about a proper attitude and disposition, but He is also concerned about how He is worshipped. John 4, remember the scene when Jesus is with um, the woman? In John 4, and she, she asks Him, essentially, where should we worship? And Jesus flat out answers the question and he says to the woman, the hour is coming, is now here, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So Jesus' own words teach us that truth matters in worship. It's not just how we come before the Lord, but it's what we say in worship. It's how we do it. But it's also what we do that matters when we worship God. And so that's why, for example, in our circles, there's a structure to what we do because we believe that's what the Scripture teaches. We don't just get to make up how we worship. 
God. There is a structure. And God cares about how He worshipped. So we have the God whom we worship, and then we have the wrong sacrifice. I want to think about the right sacrifice that should be offered before the Lord. And in doing so, I want to consider again, when we read the Old Testament, we have little picture books of the reality that's coming. So when you read again through the Old Testament, you get little signs and pointers forward to what's coming. And so the sacrificial system is again one of those pointers aiming at the Lord Jesus to teach us what's to come. A confession of faith puts it this way, chapter 8, section 6, although the work of redemption was not actually wrought by Christ till after His incarnation, yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefits thereof were communicated unto the elect in all ages successively from the beginning of the world. In and by those promises, types, and sacrifices wherein He was revealed and signified to be the seed of the woman which would bruise the serpent's head. In other words, the sacrificial system, what Nadab and Abihu were supposed to offer before the Lord, those were little pictures Those were little pointers forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we think, why was it so significant that the Lord had to strike down Nadab and Abihu for their sacrifice? Why couldn't He just pass it by? And I think, looking forward in light of what Christ has to do, this becomes quite evident. In other words, it matters how the sacrifice is offered. Christ had to obey the law perfectly. Christ couldn't come and just say, I get to do my own will. I get to offer myself however I please. It mattered how Christ served. Paul notes this in Galatians 4, when he says Christ was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. It mattered for Christ how He offered Himself up. Not just, it didn't matter only that He did so with a pure heart, but that He did it in the way He would do it. And the way He should do it. And this is of the utmost importance for us. If Christ had not done so, you are still in your sins. But if Christ offers Himself up in the manner pleasing to the Lord, not only with the right attitude and disposition, but in the right manner, then, when we talk about us having the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, we can actually be encouraged by that righteousness. Because it's the righteousness we need. It's the righteousness that is pleasing to God. So not only does it matter for Christ, but if it matters for Christ, then it has to matter for His people. It must matter how we worship the Lord. And so we have the God that we worship. We've seen the wrong way of worship. But there's also a proper way to worship the Lord. In Christ we see in His own life, I've come not to do my own will, but to do the will of my Father. But what about for us? What about for us in our worship? 
Remember when we just read the text in Leviticus, you see Aaron's response to the Lord. How many of us could honestly say that's the response that we would give? We've just seen our sons be, 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 be killed right in front of our eyes by the Lord. And he says, they're going to be quiet. He's humbled in the presence of the holy and jealous God. His mouth is stopped. We heard it this morning in Sunday school. Those who approach God in true humility are the first people to shut their mouths. Because we want to listen. We don't need to speak. We need to listen to what God has to say. And so we come, like Aaron, in humble submission before the God of this world and before the Lord of our lives. John Murray puts it this way in referencing the fear of the Lord. He says that the fear of the Lord is the soul of godliness. The fear of the Lord, the proper reverence for the Almighty God is the soul of our godliness. It's the soul of our living as Christians. And so God is the one who directs how we respond It's who God is that directs how then we should live. Murray commenting again on our response to God in worship. He uses some language we probably wouldn't use today, but I think you'll understand. He says this, Adoration springs from the apprehension of God's majesty. And where this is, there must be reverence. That is godly fear. Here again, much of our worship falls under the charge of irreverence and therefore under condemnation. There is a place in life for jollity and jollification, but how alien to the worship of God would this be in His sanctuary? God is the King of kings and the Lord of lords who only hath immortality dwelling in light unapproachable, whom no man hath seen nor can see, the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. End quote. You think about it, even in our own lives, imagine with me that you go to a place in which a famous individual, kids, whether it's an athlete, Or maybe it's a political figure that you hold to high esteem and he stands before you. No doubt in my mind, you will be quiet before that person and you want to hear that person. And if it's true for individuals, for man to man, how much more true from man to God? Our mouths shut. We sit in silence as we just sang. And we consider the God whom we worship. But as we look now to Hebrews 12, and we just consider for a few moments another New Testament passage that ramps up things once again. Our God is a consuming fire. He plays for keeps. He's holy. He's righteous. He's jealous. 
for acceptable worship that is done with reverence and awe. But what a privilege it is. What a privilege it is for us to come before this God. The God of creation has welcomed us home. And you see the encouragement in the book of Hebrews. We have two mountains that are set forth for us. Andrew referenced this in his prayer. The Old Testament, they come to this mountain, they come to worship God, and there's so much fear and terror that they tell Moses, please, Moses, stop it. Stop it. We can't take it anymore. But the author of Hebrews says, be encouraged. Though we worship the same God, the God who is a consuming fire, we come, he says, to Mount Zion. You see, those of the Old Covenant, those of the Old Testament could not go up the mountain. Only Moses could go up the mountain. Only the Mediator could go up the mountain. But we have come to Mount Zion by virtue of the Lord Jesus Christ. We no more are left in the outer courts as foreigners. But Paul says we've been welcomed home as aliens and exiles. We've been brought in And we've been brought into the presence of God. And as we worship, I don't know if you recognize this, but as we worship here in this place, we are brought into that heavenly worship where God is. Spirit has been poured out and He unites us to Christ. Christ is seated on high. He brings us to Mount Zion. We have already come to Mount Zion. And yet, chapter 13, for we have no lasting city, but we wait for the city that is to come. There's this tension. We've already come to Mount Zion. We already have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That greater sacrifice. And yet, We wait for the city that is to come. And there is a tension here. There's a tension as we wait for that day when Christ will come with shout of acclamation and take us home. What joy shall fill our hearts. And we shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim, My God, how great Thou art! It's the same thing we sing here. It's the same song. It's the God that we worship now that we will one day worship and we will see Christ face to face. There's this great hymn that we sing and I should have flipped to it already. Let me read it just for a moment as we conclude. certainly mentioned this in the past, but I think it captures something that we often don't think about in this life. Yes, we've already come to Mount Zion, but there are things missing still. Robert Murray McShane, I've already referenced him, friend of Andrew Bonar. Robert Murray McShane in When This Passing World Is Done says this, When I stand before the throne, dressed in beauty not my own, When I see Thee as Thou art and love Thee with unsinning heart, then, Lord, shall I fully know 
Not till then how much I owe. That should be our prayer. That should be our song. We love to sing. We love to think about these words. But what a day it will be when we will worship with the saints who have gone before us. But we'll worship with an unsinning heart. What a glorious day it will be when we will see Him face to face. So strive forward. Strive, as the author of Hebrews says, for the rest that remains for the people of God. Strive to enter it. You've already entered it, but you're still waiting to enter it. You live now in the fear of God. The God who is both holy, but He's also imminent. He's come down and He's met us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now by Christ, the greater sacrifice, He has ushered us into the heavens. Already we've come to Mount Zion to worship the Lord. And so as we come in our worship, may we remember that we're not just here. It's not just a number of us here, but we're gathered with the saints who've gone before us, surrounding the throne, worshiping this God, a God who is a consuming fire, but is also near to the broken and contrite in heart. So may we strive for that rest. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank You for these encouraging and challenging words to us. We ask, O God, that You would burn within our hearts, that we would long that others would be brought into this wonderful grace in which we stand and into this hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And may we long for that wonderful day, that glorious day that we wait. Come soon, Lord Jesus, and take us home that we might worship You with unsinning hearts. So as we go from here, may we walk in the fear of You. For this is our whole duty. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Christ's name.